Balance Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Eckes, a serial entrepreneur and social media guru that has an infatuation with all things business related. On the show, we bring together brands, creators, and thought leaders to discuss the power of influence. Each episode is jam-packed with learnings, firsthand stories, and conversations from guests that truly have their finger on the pulse. Stay tuned as we dive into the stories and explore the impact they're making by getting under the influence. is a soul fire production friends i have on such a powerhouse guest today and i am so excited today i'm bringing on alex peabody from bev the amazing canned rosé made by chicks but for everyone and this is just such a fangirl moment for me because i've been following bev for years i love their canned rosé um, funny enough, one time me and Spencer drank it at an event. It was his first time he ever got wine drunk. It was hilarious and fabulous and fantastic. And she's just this incredible wealth of knowledge, especially when it comes to just being a female entrepreneur in the space, in the alcohol space, in a male dominated space and her mission and story that she's basically shares of how she really wanted to build a community and build a brand with just substance versus just kind of having a day-to-day product-based business. She has this incredible story. She basically cashed out her 401k and bought 300 gallons of rosé and was like, now what? Now where do we go? So I'm so excited to have her on. Again, she has just been an inspiration for me. Her branding, her creative, her marketing approach Everything that she does, I feel like I've been watching on social media for years and obviously have just become such a fan of, you know, Bev and of her and everything that she continues to do. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Please welcome Alix Peabody to Under the Influence. Welcome back to the show, you guys. I have Alix here and I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Bev has been such an inspiration to me. It has been something that I have looked to both creatively and it has inspired me just being a female entrepreneur and your overall story with why you even wanted to create Bev or go into the alcohol industry is so empowering. So thanks so much for coming on. And I'm excited. I have like a million questions I want to ask you, and I'm probably going to interrupt you a million times because I'm so damn excited that you're on the show. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me and happy to happy to answer anything and everything. Oh my gosh. Okay. Amazing. So let's start at the top because you have this incredible story. You were basically an investment recruiter, right? And you were kind of looking at other brands before you decided that you wanted to go off onto your own and do your own pro- your own thing. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit of a crazy story. So I went to school undergrad at Dartmouth and I was a double major in math and creative writing, which makes, you know, wow. very, little, very little sense, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and when I was at Dartmouth, I really, I always, um, didn't really love how the Greek life experience created not so great situations for women a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like how sororities couldn't throw their own parties and, you just end up with a lot of, you know, a, a lot of stuff going on in frat basements um, in a way that I was not super fond of. But mm-hmm. that's kind of a little bit of my of the backstory. And um, I dealt with my own sexual assault experience at Dartmouth, as did many other women. 
Um, after that, I went and I worked in finance. And so I was there for two years at a, at a hedge fund outside of New York. Um, again, kind of, kind of random, but, um, you know, the, the financing and, you know, the frats, it was a fratty scene there as well. So after that, I moved out to San Francisco and I was a tech recruiter, um, executive headhunter for basically like VP and up levels of startups. And when I got there, I actually got sick. So that's kind of where the story begins in a way, Mm -hmm. but really it's been, you know, it's something that I've cared about longer than that. It's something that, that kind of really began as a passion of mine in in college, if you will. So Mm -hmm. I was in and out of the hospital for 18 months. I had six different surgeries. They were all related to reproductive health and I had to freeze my eggs and it wasn't covered by insurance. So that is where I had to kind of get creative. And I started throwing these pool parties at my aunt's house um, Mm -hmm. in Sonoma and ticketed pool parties charging. Um, I got, you know, friends who worked at Google to get the Google bus and did all of these sort of like crazy wacky things to create these scrappy parties that became pretty popular. Um, and I raised enough money to freeze my eggs that way. I didn't tell people that's, you know, why I was throwing the parties. Um, but, but at that point, you know, I, I kind of, I was in a little bit of a YOLO moment, if yeah. you will, um, when you, when you are 24 years old and you start dealing with health problems that you never thought you'd have, you start sure. to think, think about things differently and, um, you know, be willing to take a little bit more risk. So that was when I decided that I wanted to start a company that was centered around socializing. I loved like the female energy of the parties I was throwing and how it just change the dynamic of how men and women were interacting with each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at that point, uh, I moved down to LA. I thought, it, again, I thought it was going to be a media events company. Thank God for, you know, I didn't do that because with COVID, that would have been a disaster. <laughs> um, and looked around and thought, you know, if I want to build a brand that's saying something, and there are so many brands out there that have a voice these days, I should really build something that has a product. So started looking at different types of products, realized, you know, alcohol is kind of the lowest common denominator of any party you've ever been to. And it would be Mm -hmm. a cool way to sort of Trojan horse into having conversations around culture that have to do with that. So, um, yeah. So at that point I, uh, I cashed out my 401k that I totally not realized I had, uh, otherwise I probably <laughs> would have used it. Um, but, um, cashed it out. I bought 300 gallons of Rose. I actually met our first wine supplier on hinge two years earlier. It was just like complete wacky doing anything I could to get it off the ground. And, um, and sort of off we were, and that was the beginning of that. That is absolutely incredible. And I love that. I think that's why too, I was so drawn to Bev in the first place is because there's such a deeper level of a story versus just another alcohol brand or another canned wine or another wine. So what made you go from basically, you know, having an actual wine company or, you know, maybe like a bottled wine or something like that, that sometimes kind of has that little bit at least from me, my perspective, we're seeing a lot of like different brands in the alcohol industry kind of move away from that kind of stuffy elite totally. wine kind of brand to now what you have, which Bev, where it literally looks like a party. I mean, your product <laughs> packaging, everything stands Thank out on you. the shelf, your marketing, your branding, everything just feels like that energy. It feels very social. It feels very 
feminine, but it also feels like there's a lot of fun to be had. So what kind of made you want to jump the gap and go on this whole other marketing and creative approach? Totally. Well, you know, first of all, I think Bev was really a brand before it was a product. And that's always helped us in terms of, you know, how, um, how we've marketed. And, you know, the first time that, that someone came to me and was like, Oh, I like your brand. It was very weird for me because (laughs) I, you know, I didn't even think about it as a brand. I thought about it as, you know, as just sort of how I am and how I like to live my life. And I wanted it to be something that was obviously feminine and unapologetically. So because that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also something that was not man or angry mm-hmm. and that was approachable. And when I started, there were very, very few canned wines and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the ready to drink seltzer stuff had, yeah. was kind of just starting. It was, I mean, it was over five years ago now. So it was, it was very new and it was really hard to even find someone who would can wine. Like wow. it, was, it was hard to find a canning wine. And the reason that I did it the way that I did it was, like I said, I wanted it to really be a brand that people could identify with. And one of the, you know, one of the companies that I was inspired by is Red Bull, right? Where they, in my opinion, are really a media company that happens to be fueled by beverage sales. um, And they're really a brand first. And I figured, I mean, it sounds silly, but like, I figured I didn't really have any money at this point. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to build a brand that people could sort of relate to and that would market itself and really have, um, have that emotional connection. It needed, it couldn't be something that you pour into a glass and you don't know what it is. And so that's where I basically was like, well, you know, I guess I'm going to make it, I'm going to put it in cans because if I do that, someone's holding it. And if it's eye catching and cute Mm -hmm. and Instagram friendly and all Uh that stuff, it'll be easier um, for me to sort of market it socially in a way that's not going to, you know, cost a fortune at the beginning. So that's how it ended up in a can. It was a lot more practical in nature. Um, but the product itself and the branding itself, I mean, our first logo and it is my cousin's handwriting and wow. we kind of have, cle- have cleaned it up since then and made it a little more, um, you know, logo-y. But if you see where it says made by chicks on the side of the can, that's still her handwriting. It was still... <laughs> you know, a very, I wanted it to be approachable and almost like some, someone, you know, and someone that, um, you know, that you can, that you can be at the party with if, if you will. Yeah. It's actually, that's is such a funny synchronicity. My first job was at Red Bull oh, and no way. it's actually what led me yeah, to getting into marketing and social media, because that was our whole, whole part of our job was literally just being, like yeah. you said, a media company that had an awesome Absolutely. side product that got basically was the vehicle to moving all the media and all the marketing. Absolutely. So it was almost, it's almost like, you know, the cans are a piece of content in yeah. their own way. Right. And that's, that's how I was thinking about it at the, at the beginning and how I continue to think about it now. Which is so genius. And I think maybe too, that's why when you do look at other products and you do look at other, I mean, especially like being a female and looking at the canned wine section, like when you walk into Target or when you walk into BevMo, um, there's, there's a lot, but there's also now there's not a ton that you relate to. And I think that's with your brand's culture, you guys have been able to tap into your community and kind of build out a little bit more of this lifestyle or build out a little bit more of a relatable a relatable mission where that women want to pick up Bev or, I mean, and my boyfriend drinks it. It's 
Well, we say, just... we, say, we say we're for the good dudes too. We love yeah. Our good dudes. <laughs> yeah. It was actually the first time you ever got drunk off wine was off Bev, which was hilarious. We were at an event <laughs> together. Um, but I think that's where we see the difference, at least where I see the difference in you guys versus kind of maybe some other brands. It feels like there's a little bit more of that deeper mission. And again, if we're talking about Red Bull and kind of what you're doing, it seems like the same thing, right? Like you guys kind of share that synergy where there's, there are different like assets or facets of the company that kind of help move that mission and share that culture to a deeper level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, a lot of the wine industry has been so not approachable for so long. Mm -hmm. And as we move more into where we're seeing more and more cans, um, a lot of them tend to be product focused, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the industry is one that's so difficult to tap into that unless you're kind of already in it, mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to break into. And so what you see a lot of the time is products that are, you know, by people who have already been in the wine industry or might be yeah. winemakers or, or whatever, and not necessarily, um, you know, storytellers and brand builders. It's more mm -hmm. about the product itself. And there's a place for that, of course. And, you know, and there's also different use cases. So I don't even necessarily see other canned wines as competition. I see them as complementary because it's normalizing how you yeah. might drink the product and our, you know, the scenario in which you're going to drink Bev is going to be very different than the scenario in which you're going to drink, you know, a psalm curated mm -hmm. um, wine that happens to be in the form factor of a can. So that's kind of how I think about it. That's amazing. Can you share a little bit about what it was like breaking into this industry? And just, I mean, I also kind of want you to talk about what it was like being, you know, a female founder walking into this industry and like any yeah. of the challenges that you kind of faced? Oh my gosh. I mean, so many. So um, one of the reasons that I started with wine as well, which people don't always know, is that this industry is, um, it's very old school. And a lot of it, a lot of the laws around it, uh, surrounding the industry have been um, around since prohibition, literally. And so when wow. prohibition was lifted, um, you know, in the 1930s, there were people who were already distributing alcohol, like throughout prohibition. Um, and a lot of those families are still the distributors that own the majority of distribution in America today. Really? And yeah, That's and, wild. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And so it's, you know, there's a little bit of almost like a hidden monopoly that goes on that people don't realize is there. And part of the way that the legislation works is that a supplier, which, you know, we would be considered a supplier, someone who makes the product is by law, not allowed to be the same person as the distributor who is not allowed to be the same person as the retailer. So if you think about it, if wow. you go into Bud's, Budweiser's website or Casamigos' website, or like, you know, pick whatever mm -hmm. you cannot order direct to your door from their website right? You have to yeah. go to the store, which people have not, you know, it's not something that really dawns on you a uh -huh. lot of the time. The only exception to that rule is if you're a California winery. And that's because the wine industry and, you know, in the U S and in California is so big that they've had the lobbying power to be able to have their own tasting rooms, um, and wine clubs, right. Where they mm -hmm. can ship direct to consumer, um, and so when I was looking at the industry, I basically was like, oh God, there is like no way I'm going to break <laughs> into this thing. Like, uh -huh. this is, you know, this is so systemic, um, in terms mm -hmm. of 
just how how deep um, how deep it goes when when it's you know kind of the same people over and over again. Yeah, and um, you know, and and it's very very male dominated. And mm-hmm. I've I've been lucky recently to be able to work with a lot of women at our new partner, but um, at the beginning that was not the case at all. And mm-hmm. so I figured that if I had a product that I could sell direct online, and again this was like before COVID, so we were really lucky in that respect. I would be able to prove that there was a market for this product. And I was told, you know, um, how's it any different than beer? Why is no one's going to drink wine out of a can? Mm. Um, why aren't you marketing to men? Like all yeah. sorts of stuff. Um, you know, and it's like, well, this is only, you know, female marketed. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not necessarily going to be true. And, right. you know, um, the guys will drink what the women will drink <laughs> eventually, I promise. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I kind of realized that the only way that I was going to be able to prove that it was, you know, that it was a product and a brand that had legs to an industry that was full of men was with data. And so that's, you know, that's kind of how we got started. It was a D to C brand at the beginning, and it was mm-hmm. really by necessity. Wow. And as you're saying that it's like, everything's kind of clicking into my head. Cause obviously you know, I'm served so many Instagrams daily of like organic wine clubs or, you know, direct to consumer kind of wine products. But you're right in terms of other alcohol brands. I mean, is that the case then for like beer and for like hard spirits? It's like only wine that could be D to C for the most part. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's so interesting. So how did you move into direct to consumer, because I know it's, I mean, I think with COVID, we saw such a new rise of D2C brands. And we really got, we really saw them have their opportunity to shine and like create this new movement. And I know obviously D2C brands were really kind of before COVID and there was still a lot of it, but it almost seemed like kind of COVID elevated all that. Right. So what made you go okay, I actually want to do D2C versus just going super hard into retail. Yeah, well, I mean, I I had to go D2C in a way because unless you have a distributor, you mm-hmm. can't go into retail. You just can't, you're not allowed I to see. get onto the shelf, right? And so it was at first, it was like, okay, I need to be able to get a distributor to carry my product so that I can sell it into retail because otherwise I just, I literally cannot, cannot. Yeah. So on the D2C side, um, you know, I basically was trying to build out a community and show that it was possible to have, you know, a brand like this exist and that there was room for it in the market. Um, when we moved more into retail, you know, it was it was because we had proven that out a bit. Yeah. Um, and we started to be able to be very, very thoughtful as a result of our D2C about where we wanted to distribute, how we wanted to distribute, um, the areas that we thought that the brand would do well in so that we could grow from there in a way that was responsible. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of times, um, you know, it feels like things go from nowhere to everywhere really fast. Yeah. Um, But that's, you know, it's, it's the longest night of my life, if you want to call it an overnight success, because (laughs) it has been years, you know, and um, I mean, Tito's, for example, has been around for like 23 years and people don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, And it feels like it just started like maybe like five or 10 years ago. Like exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, so it's pretty crazy how it works. And so once we were able to get 
you know, a distributor to agree to carry the product, then you move more into retail. And I think COVID and 2020 definitely helped you to see more recently that market and that sort of way of distributing has become extremely fickle and fragile because Mm -hmm. of a lot of the changes that are happening in, you know, privacy policies and stuff like that. Um, they've driven up the cost of customer acquisition for people across the board. And so you're seeing a lot of companies just can't afford, you know, to sell D2C anymore. And so I think you're starting to see a lot of people have to de-risk their revenue into wholesale. And, you know, we were, we were lucky in our timing because Mm -hmm. we were able to have that COVID moment to build a community in a way that wasn't, you know, totally breaking the bank. And then, you know, start to move more and more into retail. And that's coincided with, you know, D2C becoming harder and harder. Get Super is an instant wellness beverage brand created by moi. So good, you won't believe it's instant. It's for those seeking convenient energy sans the jitters. That's right. We put good old fashioned broad spectrum hemp CBD into our organic Arabica instant coffee. It's probably Arabica, but I call it Arabica because it sounds more fun. Get super and our hemp extract contains all the naturally occurring cannabinoids and turpentines. We include about 20 milligrams of hemp per each stick pack to give you all the fun, calm energy, plus that true entourage effect. All the benefits without getting quote unquote high, as all of our products are non-psychoactive. Get Super has been featured in Forbes US Today and was named top startup to watch in 2021 by Yahoo Finance. Also, you guys, Get Super has helped me with my anxiety. It helps me sleep better at night. I've mentioned to you guys my whole mental health journey. And honestly, this company was a just passion and project of love because of what I've gone through and what I've walked through with my own depression and anxiety. I hope that it will help you the same exact way it has helped me. So go ahead and get your 15% by using the code under the influence 15 at checkout. That's right. Under the influence 15 at checkout. I love this because I feel like you've seen like, like, again, you kind of, you saw before the COVID rise, you're obviously seeing now after What do you think, you know, for all those listening that are like, I want to start a brand or, you know, I really want to build a community, what would be some tips or some learnings that you learned from growing Bev about what's the best way to kind of even begin to approach that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned sort of almost the hard way is, especially Mm -hmm. if you're trying to build a brand that's product centric, that has inventory risk, that's, you know, expensive to buy stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just to (laughs) even sell it in the first place. Um, You don't have to have the product to test it. So, and that's one thing that I sort of learned um, in retrospect and, you know, probably could have saved myself some time and energy in the sense of, you can get a sense at a very, very small budget for are people clicking through? Do, are they actually interested? Can you build a wait list around your products? Um, and then sort of take that information and see if it, you know, if it's sticking or not. And you can do that at a low budget. You don't have to go yeah. all ham, you know, straight away. Yeah. 
And the other thing that I think we did that really, that really helped was, you know, we built our community local first and Mm -hmm. really tightly local um, Mm. around the brand. Right. And so we were in, I mean, before we got funded, we were around for like two years without funding, trying to, you know, basically bootstrap this business. Um, just like kind of trying to sell up and down the street out of, out of the trunk of my car and stuff like that. And, but we really built a community in, we're based out of Venice. So like in Venice where we would have little events and (laughs) stuff like that. Um, and sort of once you, once you are able to build that foundation of a community in one area, you start to see how to replicate it in different areas. So that would be one piece of advice as well as just start really, really small. And mm-hmm. when, when you have a, such a big vision and you want to build such a big brand, it's yeah. so easy to just get lost with all of the different, you know, opportunities or all the places you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really annoying, frankly, to, <laughs> to start, to start so small. Right. But yeah. every, everybody's got to start somewhere and, mm-hmm. um, and just doing it you know, doing it in a measured and disciplined way, I think is one of the biggest lessons I've learned. Sure. And that's an incredible, I mean, incredible piece of advice. I, when I started my product-based company, Get Super, which is the hemp infused instant coffee, I just went like balls to the wall on like marketing and approach. And I was so excited. And now that we're, you know, coming up on our first year, it's like, everything has been so refined. Like we're really coming back to these smaller back to uh, basics. Yep. Back to basics. And it's actually doing more than like trying to do all these different things at once or all these like things that were so exciting or that we wanted to do like, um, you know, like different launch parties or different campaigns and collaborations and things like that. And now we're really just like leaning into our own, like following an audience and it's seeming to work even better. And that's it. And that's so true though. Cause when you do start something new, you're obviously you, you have this vision, you want to go after it. You want to tackle it. You don't want to wait and be patient. You want it to like, patience, all is, the, patience is the worst. <laughs> I have none of it, but one of one piece of advice that I got in the very early days, which was probably the best advice I've ever gotten. And I refer back to it a lot when I start mm-hmm. to see myself, you know, distracted by shiny objects is, um, <laughs> strategy is all about what you don't do. Oh, wow. And I I think about that a lot where it's like, okay, you know, we could do all of these things. Um, you can do anything, but you can't do everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so really deci- deciding what it is that you're not going to do mm-hmm. um it really can help you keep a north star when, you know, when you are getting pulled in every which direction. Wow. I love that. That's such a great piece of advice. So let's kind of move into the way that you wanted to begin to market Bev. How did you approach like your marketing or your PR or, you know, what was, what was like kind of the key moment of like, how am I going to move this? Even if I am starting small, how am I going to get out there and get people to know, to know about it? I know, obviously you started small and local, but as you continue to kind of grow the company, what was like your main, I guess, North star for your marketing approach? Yeah. I mean, community, um, Mm -hmm. is the biggest one because it is so much about, you know, having those conversations around culture and drinking culture and, um, 
you know, and approachability and how do we have fun and responsible and, um, you know, and still enjoyable ways. Uh, the other thing that I would say is, um, for us specifically, and if you have like a consumable product, cans in hands, Mm, um, yeah. like uh, the other, you know, we say cans in hands, liquid to lips, like people have got to try it. Um, if they, and it's table stakes that it's delicious and they might, they might get it the first time because, you know, because they like what you stand for. They like the mission they've, Mm -hmm. you know, seen the social, but they're not going to buy it a second time unless they like it. And so figuring out how to get, you know, as many people as possible to try it was, um, is, is part of it and doing that in, like I said, a concentrated manner. So we work with, you know, yearly like focus markets where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we're, we're doing specifically, we're trying to go deep in this area, in this mm-hmm. area and in this area. And that's it. Um, wow. you know, and obviously we're national with, with target. So it's like, mm-hmm. we'll support, um, and, you know, and, and a couple other retailers at this point, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are a going to have the capital or the people, um, you know, or the time and bandwidth to have to be in every single bar surrounding all of those places all around the country. We have to really, really pick and choose. And so that's, wow. you know, again, it, I mean, it comes back to discipline. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I love that. That's such, I feel like that's such a good piece of advice too, especially for entrepreneurs that are starting out. Right. And I feel like there's so much feedback, especially now that we have like social media and we have the internet of like, how do I grow this as fast as possible? Or how do I pump up this brand with as much as I can to get it to this point of being like, you know, the household name or the new CBG brand that everyone's talking about. Um, so I love, I love honestly, like what you're talking about is like strategy is what you don't do, or it's like how you focus in, it's how you lean into like where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because what's happening in the market right now, more in general is we did live in a world where it was like, how do I make it a household name? How do I get mm-hmm. as big as I can? How do I get it to be like the buzzy product that everyone's talking about? Yeah. And, um, and people lost sight of the fundamentals in that, I think. And we're starting to have a little bit of a reckoning where, you know, certain businesses are struggling. The capital markets are not great. It's hard to get funding, um, stuff like that. And so really not losing sight of those fundamentals and making sure that when you're looking at your business, you know, I would recommend as, as much as people can, like, don't raise money. If you don't have to grow more slowly own, you know, have more control over what you're doing and don't get, you know, sidetracked by all of the, I, we need to be the buzziest thing because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of companies where that's just come to, to bite people because the, once you get on sort of like the external capital hamster wheel, you're, you're kind of stuck there. Right. And you're expected to hit these crazy growth numbers. And, um, and you know, in more recent times now, like I said, it's a little bit of a reckoning, but in more recent times, that's been sort of at the expense of making sure you have a path to profitability, making sure your margins are good, you know, making sure that the business is actually sustainable. Yeah. Um, And that's something that a lot of people are learning the hard way right now. I think. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think also too, you know, I'm out in San Diego, you're in LA and you know, I'm in marketing. You obviously have your own, you know, branded product. It's, 
it's something that I'm seeing so much of right now in the entrepreneur like space or like even the CBG space where there's so many of these brands and like friends of mine or friends of friends that are running after this like five year plan. That's like almost becoming like a trend for businesses right now, where it's like, you know, you go create this awesome product. You make sure it's something that's sexy, lifestyle-based, community-driven, D2C, and then you go pump it up with capital and then you get, you know, to hit these parameters in PR to eventually hopefully sell. And it's like, it almost kind of feels like this like cookie cutter trend of like what we're seeing. And I mean, I can't say that I, I don't hate it. I mean, I love all these new products and brands and people that are just like making it happen, but it is... I think what I'm trying to say is I think for entrepreneurs that are really wanting to dive into the product space or the consumable space, it is a little hard to really lean into not going that route because it kind of feels like everyone is doing it. And then there's like these couple other brands that have showcased that have done it really well and done it really big. And so it's kind of hard not to fall into that, that trend alongside of it. Yeah. But I would, I would also, you know, caution people that, um, it's not always on the inside, what it looks like on the outside. Right. And I think that that's, um, that's kind of, you're, we're going to see more and more of that. And, and once you, once you sort of accept that level of, you know, whether it's investment or you say, this is the five-year plan and, you know, we're going to hit it and whatever, whatever it is, um, you're now in a pressure cooker that's yeah. really intense, right? Because you're expected to to hit those things. And mm-hmm. if the times change, if the privacy policies change, mm-hmm. if, you know, one of your retailers, like it happened to us in 2020, where um, we were, we had been accepted into Target, we'd been accepted into like Albertsons, Vons, Pavilions, wow. um, you know, BevMo, and, and they reset their sh- shelves in between March and May. And so 2020 hits and we're like, all right, we've got this in our model. It's ready. We're going to be on shelves. And everyone's like, we're not resetting anything. Oh my gosh. Right. And so, you know, and then it's like, well, shock, you know, you didn't hit your wholesale numbers and it's like, well, how could I, of course not. Yeah, (laughs) of course not. Right. And so, so things like that happen and they happen a lot more frequently than people talk about. And so just understanding that it's not just a crazy growth story, but there's, there has to be, um, you know, there has, you have to execute on, on plans within in a world that's just like constantly changing. Um, whereas if you own your own destiny, destiny a little bit more, and you have a little bit more control and you're building more sustainably, it's, you know, it's, it's an easier ride. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it feels like it's not, and it feels like it's longer. It's, um, that's the push and pull. How much mm-hmm. do you grow and how quickly do you grow and what's that going to cost and what's, you know, what's reasonable and how much pressure do you want to be under? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think those that's totally fair and valid. And I think that we don't see a lot of that side or a lot of that kind of other take on it. Right. We kind of only see what we see on social media and kind of assume 100%. I wanted to kind of ask you to your own take on social media, especially being in the alcohol space. I know there's certain parameters that you guys have, but what are you seeing in social media right now? What are you seeing your community doing? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think there are so many different approaches, Mm -hmm. um, to social and it depends what, what, 
kind of social you're talking about, right? Like, yeah. is it Instagram? Is it TikTok? Is it Facebook? And, um, you know, or insert Snapchat yeah. podcasts, <laughs> like I mean, the all the mediums, goes, the list goes on and on. And yeah. I think, um, I think it really depends on the channel and the goal. Um, mm-hmm. because you're, you know, for us, like the channel strategy for, um, you know, we're not allowed to advertise on TikTok, mm-hmm. for example, you know, if an influencer posts with us, okay, that's awesome. Cool. But, yeah. um, you know, um, but the channel strategy for what our organic content's going to look like versus what our paid content's going to look like versus, you know, who's talking on Facebook about it and what that looks like, it all really, really varies. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just really important to listen to your community in those different areas and mm-hmm. see what they're receptive to and what they're not um, and and adjust accordingly. And your strategy doesn't have to be sort of a one size fits all when it, yeah. when it comes to social in general. Um, you know, I do think one of the things we're seeing for sure, especially on Instagram is, um, the algorithms are really heavy on reels mm-hmm. right now. Right. Yeah. And so you also have to understand a little bit of how algorithms are changing and, mm-hmm. you know, how you can still get the views and stuff that you want. But, um, but that's kind of, I mean, there's a lot going on right now in terms of change on, on the social front. So the biggest, I guess, piece of advice I have is just make sure that you're, that you're conscious of your channel as well. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So I want to kind of move into a couple questions more about you being an entrepreneur. Yeah, obviously you have a lot on your plate and you have a team, you have an incredible badass office in Venice that just is like, so eye-catching and fun. Thank you. How, what, what are some things that as an entrepreneur, you know, you set yourself up for like during your day or how do you kind of manage and balance it all? Do you have morning practices? Do you have evening practices? You know, do you have specific boundaries? Do you batch your work days? Like I'm very interested in how you kind of lean into what's going to make you the most successful to really manage the brand, but also manage your team. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a great question. And honestly, one that, uh, I'm grappling with right now, (laughs) um, in terms of, you know, what does the morning routine look like? Um, it's, it's been, I'm lucky. I live walking distance from, from the office. And so that's cool. you know, be being able to, at the very least get some air in the mornings has Mm -hmm. been really important. Um, especially after COVID where it was, you know, working from home and all the lines are kind of blurred. I try, I don't, I mean, I don't do it every day, even though I should, <laughs> but, um, you know, I have my notebook, I sit down, I say, all right, what am I reading? What am I excited about today? Three things I'm grateful for. I know it sounds so hokey, but mm-hmm. when you're under a lot of stress, it's important to remind yourself of that. Yeah. Um, sometimes like an affirmation if you need it. And then mm-hmm. what are the must do's, you know, the like to do's and the things just to keep on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, you know, maybe I'm waiting for a response on, on something or something that's a little bit more of a longer term project. Um, I try for the most part to keep my Mondays pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just generally, A, I'm just a little slow after the weekend the <laughs> Monday mornings, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, but but also because it helps me sort of gather everything that I'm going to need to do for that whole week. Um, you know, what the team's going to need to do for that whole week. We tend to do 
our sort of main management meetings either later on the on Monday afternoons or on mm-hmm. Tuesday mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have different theories and strategies about about all of that. And uh, yeah, and then I I recently got an, an ice plunge, so I try to like get into. Oh, that. how do you like that? Um, I hated it at first. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, I heard it's, it's uh, pretty gnarly. Like it's the first couple times gna- you do it, it's pretty gnarly. Um, but I've started trying to do that more frequently in the huh. evening, just to kind of like get my heart rate down and, you know, breathing down and stuff like that, because it can be, you know, it it can be very anxiety inducing. And then if I'm, and then if I'm being totally honest, like I watched an episode of a sitcom that's totally mindless before I go to sleep just to turn off. And that's that's amazing. No, I love that. I feel like I, when I interview entrepreneurs and we talk about these things, there's a lot of give and take with what we do for ourselves. And then like what we kind of like set up expectations for how we're going to like do these things for ourselves. Right. And it's, again, I kind of love that you talk about, you're like, well, I have these practices, but you know, you're also not putting this immense pressure on yourself, which was something that I was kind of walking through because there's like mornings where like, I love not having a plan. I'm hate working out. I hate moving my body. It's just something that I've never been good at as a kid. I'm not coordinated whatsoever. And I started realizing though, like, I was like, you know, I, I hate working out. I don't want to move in the morning, but then I started taking like morning walks and like listening to audiobooks. but I don't hold that pressure, like over my head. Like it's not yeah. going to make me successful if I'm not taking my morning walk every single morning. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you read a lot about this kind of thing and I feel like mm-hmm. every entrepreneur does. And it's like, what's the trick? Like yeah. what's the magic, what's the magic routine yeah. that I need or whatever. Like the cheat code. <laughs> yeah. And I do, I do work out most mornings. Um, it, probably, but one of the things that I realized about myself, for example, like when it comes to working out and I'm mm-hmm. um, generally not on Monday mornings, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I learned about myself was I used to be like, okay, I got to be up at six and I have to have worked out and I need to be like at my desk by eight. And I need, you know, and, and all of these things where it was like, you know, and then I have to work until 8 PM and whatever. And every single time I did, I, I, I'd last like two, maybe three weeks Mm -hmm. and then just burn and just be exhausted and then not work out at all for like a month. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think has been really important for me too, is just learning the cycle of my body and being okay with it. Mm -hmm. And so I need a lot of sleep, like period. I don't like waking up any earlier than seven 30, ideally (laughs) eight. Right. And so if I'm going to, you might be the same person. I I mean, I just don't, I just don't like it. And if I, and if I, and if I force myself to be, you know, up, up early and doing all of the things that, you know, that you read, you know, about Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley people doing, uh, I'm just not as productive. And so I've gotten to a point now where it's like, all right, if I'm not, you know, at my desk until nine 30 or 10, that's fine. That's how I work best. And, um, you know, and then I also have t- with my chief of staff, I share an office with her and, you know, we chat all the time and there'll, there'll be times when I'm sitting and I'm staring at my screen and she'll kind of look at me and remind me and go, is this, is this a moment where you're going to be most productive staring mm-hmm. at your screen or do you just need to go stare out the window? And I'm, oh, and you know what I mean? And yeah, like, that's don't, really cool. Don't forget to stare out the window, you know, yeah. like for I mean, that's the way that I kind of describe just like 
doing nothing and letting your mind wander because that's where a lot of the creativity is going to actually show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, I don't know if that helps, but no, I would it, just say. it does. It's, um, it's actually really funny. You talk about this. My dad talks about it with me all the time. He's an entrepreneur and he used to race boats and cars like his whole life. And that's he awesome. calls it seat time. And there's this philosophy in, in racing where the more time that you spend in your car, the better of a driver you become, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're practicing. It means that you're just spending time in that space, like in that headspace. And so he yeah. talks about it all the time. He's like, you need to have more seat time, like in your business, like you need to sit and just, like you said, either let yourself think or vision or dream, or he's like, not necessarily doing work, but actually thinking about what it is you want to do or kind of just letting yourself be in that space. And I I love that. I was on the skinny confidential with Lauren Bostick and I uh, absolutely adore her. And she said something that really resonated with me when we were talking about a similar topic, which was work on your business, not for your business. Mm, And I think that. that really resonated with me where I was like, you know what? I think I've been working for my business a little too much and not on it enough. Um, and I think working on it requires you to like, listen to yourself. And Mm -hmm. if staring at a spreadsheet isn't, you know, (laughs) isn't going to help you solve your, your problem, don't feel like you have to stare at it just for the sake of staring at it. If you need, you know, if you need an afternoon off just to think. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. And I, I have, you know, I have a, couple final questions for you. I mean, this has been a really amazing interview and I really thank you so much for your time and sharing so much with us. Um, I want to ask you, what was the biggest influence for starting Bev? Oh man. I mean, in many ways, like those parties I threw up at my aunt and uncle's house was a huge influence. And my aunt herself, um, was like, was a huge influence. Um, just in the sense of she's welcoming and lovely and, um, a great person to be around. And, you know, I wanted a brand that almost emulated that, that feeling. Um, mm-hmm. so I would say that was probably one of the bigger influences, if, if you will. I love it. That's beautiful. And then our final question, we ask every guest on the show, what does influence mean to you? What does influence mean to me? <laughs> it means being impacted by someone or something in a way that's deeper than, um, you know, deeper than a transactional interaction, I guess, right. Mm -hmm. Being influenced by something to me is, um, you know, is really, is, is really taking something to heart. And oftentimes people don't even realize that they're influencing you, (laughs) you know, and, um, those tend to be the best, the best moments for me. So Beautiful. I love it. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing about Bev. Where can everyone find you, follow you, see yeah, what's next for you? Absolutely. Um, you can follow at drink Bev. Um, obviously drinkbev.com is where you can order, uh, order some Bev online if you want to, or get it at your nearest grocery store. Um, yeah. And, and my Instagram is just at Alix Peabody. It's pretty straightforward. So if you want to, if you want to see what's going on with me, I, um, I, I don't know what the heck I do on there, but I'm there. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Well, thanks again for going under the influence with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 